Kidney Trees, Lift Health for All is a podcast from the Center for Health Equity Transformation, gathering voices in research and communities around Chicago. Conversations and interviews will discuss the importance of achieving health equity, highlighting health disparities, and exploring innovative ways to improve health for all. Kimberly Sonnen is the creative director, editor, and curator of the Some People, Everybody Group Art and Photography Exhibition. The ongoing project examines the ethics, people, processes, and systems that constitute the maintenance of and barrier to health for human beings. With this exhibition, the group of high-performing contributing artists, photographers, essayists, and physicians are asking the seminal question of our time. How do people define health insurance? healthcare, public health, and health. My name is Rabia, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Ivy and Araceli. Hey, this is Ivy. I'm sitting with my cats at home. How's going, Araceli, over there? Hi, this is Araceli. I'm just enjoying working from home and being comfortable in my PJs, at least for now. Thank you both. As you guys heard, so today is March 12, 2020. Effective today, our center is working from home due to the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic. Just yesterday, uh, March 11th, the president has barred any travel from Europe to the U.S. for the next 30 days. Universities, schools, and organizations across the country are taking precautions as we brace for the impact. Northwestern has extended spring break and requiring students and faculty to hold classes remotely. We have Kimberly joining us today by phone. Welcome, Kimberly, to the Skinny Trees podcast. We've uh, shared a bit about the coronavirus and how it's impacted our lives uh, right now. Could you share with us how the coronavirus has impacted you? Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really glad to be here today, at least remotely or connected to you remotely um, in the wake of what's in our midst at this moment regarding public health. Um, The way in which it's impacted me is um, I, too, am working from home today. Usually I'm out and about a little bit more meetings and meeting with clients. And um, today, just about everybody I know is working from home or kind of pumping the brakes um, uh, because of the, just as everyone's trying to pump the brakes on the the velocity of this virus. Um, As far as the, how it relates to this project, you know, we're really seeing a convergence right now. Um, We're seeing a convergence of a lot of health movements, health equity, disability rights, public health, uh, single payer, um, healthcare justice, all of these, um, these environmental health, all of these movements globally seem to be converging at this moment. And this coronavirus pandemic is really kind of shining a light on a lot of issues related to healthcare, politics, and economics. And so I think it's a perfect time for the conversation we're going to have today. And I'm just uh, glad to be here. Thank you so much, Kimberly. Um, let's go back a little bit. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about you and your background? Sure, sure. Well, um, we're all here in Chicago, and I know your center focuses on Chicago and the upper Midwest quite a bit. Um, my family goes back five generations here. Um, my five nephews are the fifth generation of Sonins in Chicago. My dad, Terry, who died in October last year, is from the, the near south side at 72nd and Eggleston, uh, if you guys are familiar with that area. And my mother is from the north side. Um, she grew up around North and Harlem. Um, I attended Bennett Academy, which is a high school in Lyle, west of Chicago, 
and I graduated Loyola University for undergraduate. Um, but interestingly, uh, although those are both private Catholic and Jesuit institutions, I don't subscribe to or practice any religion. Um, professionally, I've worked for Harper's Magazine as an intern, um, and that really cemented my path in journalism and media and policy. And then I went on to work for NPR in Washington, D.C., um, and there I worked as the corporate communications liaison for the news division. And that was back when Jeffrey Dvorkin was the vice president of news, and he's still a media literacy kind of mentor for me to this day. Um, then I went on to work for the Chicago Tribune as the publicity director of their now defunct books division. And most recently, I worked for Seven Photo Agency in New York City, which is um, a prestigious photojournalism agency that publishes all over the world, especially in times like this uh, with the coronavirus, kind of documenting uh, the most important pressing issues of our time. And there I worked as the director of global business development and special projects. Um, I've been a freelance writer for about 25 years now, and since 99, I've also owned my own consultancy called Unspun, so I advise on operational and organizational and communication strategy for companies, and I consult on media arts and journalism and content, visual storytelling projects. Um, at times, I work with startups. Other times, I work with legacy established companies that are in triage mode or transitional mode. Um, and then sometimes I build independent projects from the ground up, like some people, everybody. Now that you mention your exhibition, Some People, Everybody, what inspired you to curate this exhibition? Sure. Well, I I have a manageable chronic illness. And um, by 2003, I had been denied access to health care by health insurance companies repeatedly while employed, while working full time. And in 2009, just about... Uh, well, it was more like 2007, but by 2009, I was finally bankrupted uh, by an avalanche of medical bill debt and out-of-pocket costs and health insurance denial of care. Um, at that time, I was the executive director of an economic development startup in Minnesota, and it was really devastating. Um, it's extremely disruptive. It's also saddening and angering, and I know now how many people have gone through that. But at the time, um, it was something that I was trying to navigate without sharing it. I felt a little bit of kind of some off-point shame, and I didn't know exactly what I had done wrong, um, you know, why I wasn't being, being able to keep up with these costs. Um, so I've gone public with this experience now, and I'm often asked during interviews like this, you know, what did you have? What's your illness? How much were you in debt? Um, but for me, the motivation for this exhibition uh, was kind of to no longer focus on the what, but the why. You know, that why is this happening? Why is healthcare access so difficult? Why is health equity out of reach? Um, why are so many people denied care? Why are so many people working 60, 70 hours a week and still not being able to afford um, health insurance, which, of course, I want to make sure I make my feeling clear that health insurance and health care are very different. And so the, the more I investigated and studied systemic denial of care, I learned the harm was intentional and by design. And 
you know, now we have an entire language that's been invented by the private health insurance industry to delay and deny access to health care. So I began to shape this group concept that would humanize the health care policy debate. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of projects out there specifically about illness, um, but this work, this project brings the conversation back to the body, you know, back to the individual back to universal fragility, universal vulnerability, rather than some people or specific groups. And, you know, it's my hope with this exhibition that people remember that we are all made of pumps and valves and water and blood and cells. And, you know, we we are machines. You know, some people look at the body as a spiritual vessel. Some people look at it as a physical machine. But no matter where people stand, um, I'd like people to return the conversation to the body. And I I really would like people to take the judgment and blame out of the healthcare policy debate as well. Um, And I wish more people would talk openly about how much they're struggling with medical bills. Um, So this exhibition is kind of a creative expression of that experience. And it's fueled a little bit by righteous anger, um, but it's also fueled by journalistic integrity and um, kind of the the um, my aim to kind of elevate the dialogue around healthcare policy. But it is important to share that between 2014 and 2017, that my ACA health insurance was dropped by Northwestern Memorial Hospital, Rush Presbyterian Hospital, and the University of Chicago Hospital. So. I had to move my care three times in four years, and finally I left Chicago for healthcare. So now I get my care out in the suburbs, but that absolutely fuels my motivation for kind of elevating the dialogue, curating the show, and inserting um, this work into the public healthcare policy debate. Thank you so much, Kimberly. I think you touched on my next question on your goals to achieve. Uh, what your goals are to achieve with this exhibition with like raising the awareness and kind of very inspiring to hear um, how you like allowed yourself to be vulnerable and put your story out there and some of these topics are like taboo to talk about like you mentioned it's always some people it's always other people but it's all of us it's everybody I really like that title of your exhibition Yes. You know, when you visited the exhibition, um, I, I think you, you, you gripped the title and gripped the concept very quickly. And the title is a play on some people, everybody, the physical body, but also everybody, that everybody is universally fragile and vulnerable. And, you know, I'd like Americans and, and Chicagoans to come up with a new de- definition of an approach to health and healthcare. You know, I, I, I'd like us to think more widely, you know, as we're in the midst of an election year, um, uh, you know, I think oftentimes people ask me if I back one candidate or if I'm aligned with one political party, but I always hit the ball over the net right back at them and, and kind of take a step back and call on people across political lines, across socioeconomic lines, across faith-based lines and immigrant lines and geopolitical lines and 
really start thinking about what health means to them, you know, at their kitchen table, at the water cool cooler with strangers, and kind of step back from the political football and and step back from some all the barriers to healthcare that we face and instead start thinking a little bit more widely and more philosophically about what health means not only to the personal experience and quality of life, but also to the economy. I mean, as we talk to each other today, we're seeing the effects of poor public health, what it can do to the economy. Uh, In your introduction, you touched on what it's doing to the markets as we're talking today and the instability it's causing and how inaccurate information can destabilize the markets and also destabilize health. So I think what's happening now is the volume and velocity of this virus is increasing what we should be aware of every day, you know, long before the virus kind of became a threat uh, in October, November of last year publicly. I think we need to be thinking every day about health in, in the broadest sense and what we're doing in our daily lives across professions to um, enhance health, improve health, and leverage health. And that, of course, leverages human potential, whether you're a student, an athlete, a physician, a disabled person. I think it's a way of thinking and health is a way of speaking. And that's why language is just so important in this context, especially uh, now, especially because of what we're going through internationally now as um, as a as an international community with this virus. That's very true, Kimberly. Um, I'm going to jump in here for a little bit. Um, and I totally agree that um, because of this uh, pandemic, it brings up a lot of other issues that we kind of set aside and not deal with it for, um, at the moment. But now when we have something as big as this virus, um, everything comes up. Um, so I actually went to the uh, exhibition and that's where I met you. Um, it was very lucky and fortunate that I got to speak with you there. Well, one of the exhibition, uh, you interviewed and photographed quite a few of healthcare providers, from medical student to retired physician, to find out how did they define health. What made you interested in this, and did anything they said stand out to you? Oh, so much. You know, I'm, I'm, it means so much to me that you responded to that, um, that wall of portraits that we, we shot. I, along with my assistant, Riley Gunderson, who's a student in New York, photographed many physicians and medical students. And we included about 20 of them uh, in this exhibition. And, you know, I asked them a simple question, as you said, you know, how do you define health? And I wanted to interview as many physicians and medical students as possible in Chicago about their personal views because physicians don't often have the opportunity to share their personal views on health publicly. You know, I'm at an age and a time in my life where I'm being very open and very public about my personal experience. And there are risks that I've negotiated with myself to do that. I've chosen at this age in my life to do that, to share very personal information and experiences publicly. Physicians and medical students don't often have the opportunity to do that because they're aligned with institutions and hospitals and clinics, and they're often speaking on behalf of those institutions. 
in a professional capacity rather than a personal one. So, you know, also they're scientists and problem solvers and tapping into their emotions and intellect is extremely interesting to me um, because they're in the trenches. They're on the front lines. And just as the healthcare workers right now are on the front lines and at risk with this virus and the management of it and the containment of it, um, these people are on the front lines and in the trenches every day. So I, I really respect them and revere their work and honor the work of healthcare workers. And I'm not just talking about orthopedic surgeons at Rush. I'm also talking about janitors at Northwestern and um, administrators uh, at Loyola and people at Stroger who uh, keep the hallways clean. So I think across the industry, the entire ecosystem, every person who works in the ecosystem of healthcare, I have a tremendous reverence for them. Um, I think it's a calling for people, um, for a lot of people that enter into medicine, and they really want to implement best practice. They really do care about their patients. So I interviewed these med students in their 20s and retired surgeons in their 80s, and to answer your question, the responses were all really moving and powerful to me. Um, but what was most moving was the time I spent with them during the photo shoot when we stopped shooting. And most all of them who work in Chicago feel a collective ache. And they feel that the current system is kind of fragmented and disjoint and not allowing them to serve their patients as well as they could be. And they also hurt, you know, they're hurting for the people who cannot access health care. They're hurting for the people who cannot access preventive care. And they're hurting for the people who, you know, for them, it's for most people, it's become affordable uh, to even attain primary care. So I think as I talk to 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, all the way up to a 90-year-old who has retired and had practiced medicine for nearly 60 years, you know, it was really powerful to sit down with them in their offices and at their own kitchen tables and kind of see that side of them. You know, one ER physician who's worked for years in the Sinai Health System here in Chicago, he's currently stockpiling supplies in the ER because budget cuts have put his patients at risk during triage. Um, another executive who recently resigned from Cook County Health System in an interview told me that there is a sort of underground railroad of supplies in Chicago from hospital to hospital where physicians are messengering supplies to each other because of budget cuts. Um, another um, nurse said that she has purchased supplies for her hospital on eBay and for her ER. So I think there's a lot of um, pain uh, right now with healthcare workers because they're being held back and and they feel they could be doing better, but there's a lot of barriers to doing better. Wow, that, that is very true. And I appreciate that you bring up not just the physicians, but everybody else who is in healthcare is part of this. They, they are all in it together and they truly do care about the patient, the people that they try to help. Um, there is another Chicago artist that you showcased at the exhibition named Crystal Hodges. She engaged public for her art installation to find out the public's definition of health. Can you tell us some of her interesting findings and um, is there any alignment with the interview that you did with physicians? 
Yes, yes. So the, the, the piece that you are speaking about um, that so many people gravitated to uh, at the exhibition was called Hanging by a Thread. And for your listeners, for the Skinny Tree listeners, listeners um, the piece was a round circle with hands cast in cement on it. And they were all gripping a piece of red thread that was hung high into the ceiling. So the red thread came down into these hands. And Crystal Hodges and her team at All Kind Studio in Chicago created this public engagement art installation. And they asked people all across Chicago to send in their healthcare stories, whether they were disabled or a veteran or or um, a paraplegic by injury or born with some illness or injury that disabled them, or married couples, single people, young, old. And they all kind of felt this feeling that they were hanging by a thread, that even if they were healthy, um, one injury, one illness, one disability could bankrupt them. And so what was interesting, the most interesting to me about that exhibition and I think the reason so many people responded so viscerally to it is all the essays that came in were very compelling. But to me, what I wanted to share with the Skinny Trees audience that they would never know about that piece is that when Crystal gave birth to her daughter, she was denied care by her insurance company for a wellness check. So when babies are born, they generally get a wellness check at three, six, nine months, and one year to start because early childhood development is so very important um, with newborns. And for no reason, her health insurance company denied the the second newborn wellness check uh, for her daughter. She and her husband had to appeal it to get the care. It was delayed. Finally, they got it but this is for a newborn baby. So, so, so that's what's motivated each and every artist, each and every journalist, each and every doctor to be part of this exhibition that as we're telling other people's stories as voyeurs and vessels for news and witnesses professionally, we each have our own story. And we, you know, we are also people who are living our lives and we have families and loved ones and those those are the examples or those are the, the backstories that I think might be of interest to your listeners because everyone has a story, and especially in the United States. Everyone has a story of that sort. And it's very destabilizing for families. It's very anxiety-producing for families. And it's all preventable. It's all unnecessary. Um, so that's kind of that collective ache that I keep returning to. I think a lot of people are feeling it um, and they're trying to elevate that dialogue and try and try and make people aware or share their personal stories so that people realize they're not alone. Yeah, I think this is part of why your exhibition is so appealing to so many people because everyone can connect to, the, to it. Even if it, they haven't experienced it directly themselves, they know someone. Everybody everybody has to know someone that has been affected by some type of healthcare or insurance issues. At the exhibition, there's another Chicago artist that you feature named Levu Passeri. 
who had a multimedia installation that highlights the complex language of healthcare. How do you think languages are weaponized and used as a barrier to access healthcare? That was such a great um, multimedia interactive uh, art installations. For those people who don't aren't familiar with Vivian Pasari's work, um, he's an international multimedia artist uh, working out of Chicago, and um, he created for some people, everybody, this installation where there was a body kind of under siege by the words that have been invented by the private health insurance industry to delay and deny care. So denial of care is the way in which health insurance companies profit. And his art installation was interactive. So people could walk right up to it and kind of drown in the sea of confusing, you know, confusing words and phrases. And then when so many terms and phrases landed on the body, the body eventually disappeared. It died. And to name of the, a few of the terms and the words that we were using in that um, that uh, that piece, you know, I'll just throw a few of them out there off the top of my head. You know, for your listeners who may or may not have dealt with language of this sort, but all of it's intended to deny and confuse or delay care, confuse people, disorient them. And that, of course, delays care and sometimes results in denial of care. But we had words on the wall. I don't know if you remember any of them, Ivy, but medical loss ratios, retrospective denials, deductibles out of network, uh, co-pays, purging, dumping, appeals, pre-existing conditions. Um, there's health reimbursement accounts, working poor, uh, experimental or investigati investigational drugs, um, allowed amounts. Credible, creditable coverage, rebenefit period, benefit buy-downs. And my favorite, I would have to say, is the functionally uninsured, which was a new term that came out in 2019. And, and so all of these words, you know, people in the 80s and 90s, they didn't even know this language. They didn't understand at the onset or the dawn of managed care in the early 80s what these words meant, what, what this vernacular this new vocabulary, this new glossary of terms met. And now, 40 years into managed care, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of terms and words of this sort um, in, the, in the health insurance, private health insurance, the commercial insurance vernacular, which, you know, when people are confused, overwhelmed, administratively bogged down, especially while they're sick, um, these words, this, these, this, these words and this language um, serves its purpose, and the purpose is to delay care and cause confusion and cause appeals that further delay care. So this language is not only disorienting, and it's, it not only delays care, but it's very harmful, and it's very effective in delaying care, which, of course, sometimes results in harm or death. Um, so this is where language gets very, very dangerous. Um, it becomes not just, you know, it's not just words. It can become a weapon and a quite lethal one. And sometimes it's kind of invisible. The harm is invisible. You couldn't have said it better. Um, all this word, I used to work in healthcare and used to help patients with their insurance issues. And I still have trouble dealing with myself or my family's insurance. And I get very upset and frustrated because I should know this stuff, but I, don't, I still don't. There's no way that you can know enough to be able to handle it. 
especially right. if you are really sick. And you mentioned earlier, there's a new term that came out last year, dysfunctionally uninsured. Would you mind giving us <laughs> an explanation? Dysfunctionally <laughs> uninsured. This was coined by the insurance industry late last year in 2019. And what it means is, depending on if you're an English, uh, you know, an English major or not, um, it depends on how you read it. Because even the phrase is... Um, it's a term that could be read in two different ways, but what in, in their context, what it means is you are working, you are able to get insurance, but you remain uninsured. So you are functionally uninsured versus perhaps a disabled person who is just denied care because they're too high risk or they're too high risk for the risk pool, et cetera, et cetera. But the functionally uninsured means that you are working 40, 50, 60, sometimes in the United States, 70 hours a week, but you still remain uninsured. You might be a contractor. You might be a freelancer. You might be a parent who um, spouse works in a professional office setting or at a factory, but you work full-time as a parent from the home. So functionally uninsured <laughs> implies that you are very high risk because you are uninsured, um, and you could lose everything with one injury or one illness because you would be bankrupted um, if ever you were be you know fall ill or be injured and go to the hospital without insurance and needed ER care or ICU care for example. Um, so it's a term that is almost comically I don't know if it's tragically comic or comically tragic, um, but it's terms like that uh, retrospective denials. You know, all of those terms have become part of our parlance, and, and they're really um, just phrases that are intentionally designed and concocted to deny care, which, again, is how private insurance companies make their money. But, but this disorientation often happens when people get sick. So it's, it, it's, a, it's a very perverse and very da damaging kind of, um, kind of uh, structure in that when you need it most, when you, you are down, your resistance is down, your vulnerability is high, you're exposed, and you're hurting the most, you're trying to navigate all of these terms. And I think families, business owners, individuals, students, lawyers who try and navigate this language, healthcare professionals who try and navigate this language, everybody's frustrated. And again, it's unnecessary. Um, it's unnecessary and it's it's very harmful. Uh, who do you think needs to see this exhibition, and what kind of takeaway would you like them to have? Oh, that's a that's a really important question because, of course, I'd like frontline health workers, physicians, nurses, medical students, researchers, um, people in those professions to see our exhibition, especially here in Chicago you know, a, a medical center, a teaching center for healthcare. So I'd like as many people who work in the healthcare system uh, to see this exhibition, but I'd also like every CEO, CFO, vice president, employee, and board member who, you know, who work for the uh, health insurance companies and biotech companies, I mean, mainly the people who work for the companies that comprise the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future lobbying group, I'd like them to see this this uh, exhibition. And the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future lobbying group is comprised of biotech, pharmaceutical industry leaders, 
private health insurance leaders, leaders of hospital chains. And those persons, I think, would embrace the exhibition. They might actually respond to it. And I think emotion comes first, and then policy change happens. And I think they might see themselves in these photos and in this art and in these essays, you know, if they are mothers and fathers, sisters, brothers, friends, colleagues, you know, they might even see themselves in this work. And our job is really to step back, present the work as journalists, artists, and essayists, and then step back and let people respond to it, you know, as they, as they like. I'd also like to see, um, you know, uh, people across the nation who can't see the exhibition in person um, follow us online on our digital exhibition, which is on Instagram at Some People Everybody, and they can participate there. Um, I continue as a curator and creative director to post top flight photography. Uh, uh, those photographers are still contributing essays. Um, we have news and updates on live exhibitions and ongoing work regularly. Um, but most importantly, most importantly, I like the MBAs and the students coming out of business school and students graduating high school who don't know what they're going to do yet professionally. I'd like them to see this exhibition. I'd like you know, people who own small and mid-sized businesses, mom and pop businesses and families to visit the exhibition together, both in person, when we do live exhibitions, but also online on Instagram, because that cross-profession communication is so important. It's important that business people understand the impact of their practices and business. It's important that students realize the impact of their behaviors on health and wellness. So it's important that all of us kind of take stock and look to our professional and personal identities and really kind of consider how our behaviors professionally and personally impact health, the health of strangers, the health of our loved ones, the health of our colleagues. And I think, I think there's a crevasse that exists right now between business and health. It's slowly converging. We're seeing that happen in real time as we talk today. We're seeing the collision of public health and business responsibility that's all colliding in real time in the face of this coronavirus pandemic. So I think I'd like to see more people come see the exhibition and realize it's not just for healthcare workers. It's for teachers, lawyers, students, people who are unemployed and struggling because we're all kind of in this together, use a cliche. Um, and I really do believe that change begins at the kitchen table, in boardrooms, and on the street. You know, the more professions we have speaking across industries to one another to improve public health, the better. You know, this doesn't, public health just doesn't fall on the shoulders of healthcare workers alone. It, Everyone has a stake. I want to see you be healthy because your health impacts my health. And the coronavirus pandemic or, it is, is forcing that conversation that suddenly, especially in the United States, particularly in the United States, suddenly the health of strangers 
is urgent. Access to healthcare without barriers is urgent. And before three weeks ago or prior to three weeks ago, that wasn't the general consensus. So it's forcing that conversation that possibly there isn't less than you and I have the same worth that all human life has value. And I think that's what the coronavirus pandemic is bringing to the conversation. And although this is tragic and it's been sad to watch the impact of the virus, the one byproduct that is going to come out of all of this is looking at this stranger next to you and wanting her to be healthy and understanding that her health is connected to your health, that we're all interconnected. That is very, very true, and you put it um, very nicely, and especially with the last comparison that the stranger next to you. Because I think nobody really, like most of the time, people don't think about this stuff, and they don't think about their decision would impact, their individual decision would impact a lot, um, a lot of other people. You put it very nicely. Thank you. Yes. Well, I think, you know, with regard to language, we've got, you know, what this is, the, the last three weeks have really illuminated is there are a few different types of language within this public health dialogue. You know, we've got the patient, physician, or nurse, where we want facts, science, case studies, and best practice kind of peppered and sprinkled with compassion and empathy. And then we have public health. You know, this is the way in which we talk to our family, our friends, our colleagues, and strangers about concussion culture, chronic obesity, parental leave, sick leave, the root causes of trauma, um, the root causes of the suicide epidemic, homicide, heart failure, cost prohibitive pharmaceutical prices, clean water, clean air. You know, that's the public health language. Then we have the language concocted by the health insurance industry, you know, this glossary of thousands of words and terms that the industry has invented to deny and neglect care. And, and as we talk today, we are seeing federal policy decisions to relieve those, you know, remove those barriers to health care. So we're seeing the health insurance companies by mandate at the federal level be forced to, lit, to waive the pre-approval and pre-authorization and all of those barriers to get healthcare because people are dying and they're dying quickly. So the language concocted by the health insurance industry, um, we're seeing it dismantled a little bit um, in the midst of this virus. So then there's another kind of language called corporate malfeasance. And for years, this term corporate malfeasance has meant white collar crime. And white-collar crime in the healthcare space is rarely, you know, people are rarely convicted. They're rarely indicted. They usually, uh, they usually, the crime is committed, and then a settlement is paid to the Department of Justice, and no persons, no individual persons are convicted for their crimes. So in recent, the last year and a half, while curating this exhibition, I've coined the term boardroom violence. The boardroom violence has to do with the decisions that are being made at the highest levels 
at the biggest companies in the world, not only in North America, Johnson & Johnson, the Sackler family, Purdue Pharmaceutical, the Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois, Healthcare Services Corporation, the decisions being made by the members in these boardrooms are violent. And as far as public health goes, some of the decisions being made in these boardrooms are more violent than, say, you know, here in Chicago, we talk a lot about gun violence. To me, boardroom violence is the worst. It's the most harmful and damaging type of violence there is. Why? Because it's invisible. And the decisions being made at the executive level and the senior management level and the shareholder level at many of these large companies are intentionally designed to perpetuate harm for profit. And that's why boardroom violence and the language of boardroom violence is so very damaging to public health because it's hard to track, it's legal, or it sometimes takes 20 years for the legal system to catch up with the harm. And we're seeing it time and time and time again with pharmaceutical companies, with private health insurance companies, with biotech companies. And so to me, boardroom violence is one of the most important conversations right now to be addressing as far as language goes and how it can cause violence. Because we are in a time where people think, well, language is fast and loose and language can be entertaining and falsehoods can be entertaining. But I think what we've learned in recent years particularly is that language can be very, very harmful and it can even cause death. So that's the way in which I kind of frame the healthcare language or the context of healthcare language, you know, patient, physician, public health, health insurance industry language, and then boardroom violence. And um, we're all, we're all accountable. We're all accountable. Thank you, Kimberly. I just wanted to jump in with one comment on, on that. When we talk about health equity, we usually talk about this um, this idea that there are upstream and downstream effects. So if you imagine there's this river running through with these different variables that affect people's health, and this happening upstream, it might be, like you said, um, at, at the sea level or C-suite level, decisions being made to maybe uh, increase profit or, or make it may not seem at the time to be something to cause direct harm, but then there are effects we see downstream that can cause harm to patients, to the public health um, sector in general. So it is an important way to look at things. And uh, we also talk about structural violence in terms of how the environment can contribute to cause direct harm to individuals, for example, when there is uh, you know, a lack of infrastructure for people to access healthy foods or um, being exposed to air pollutants, that is a form of structural violence that we talk about often in our research and, our, um, and with our community members. Absolutely. All of these things, all of these issues are interconnected. And if I can just kind of jump back to Ivy's question earlier in the conversation about why I interviewed medical students and physicians for this exhibition, you know, there's one, there was one day where we were photographing students at the University of Chicago. And on that day, there was a mass shooting just blocks away off of Damon Avenue. And so as our car approached University of Illinois, we were 
rerouted by the police. And the SWAT team was running into the situation right in front of us. So we were, we were rerouted and we met the medical students in the shoot location. And we were in the back of an academic building at UIC. There were police helicopters circling above. There were uh, media helicopters circling above. And the mass shooting was going on two blocks away when we were photographing the medical students. Now, in those situations, M4 and M3 students can be called in to help if the situation requires, meaning third and fourth year medical students. Um, so what happens is the university puts out during a, um, a natural disaster or a mass shooting or an emergency of large scope and scale, they alert all of the medical students to be on deck. And so when we got to the location where we were going to photograph the, port, the students uh, and shoot their portraits for the exhibition, their phones started lighting up and alarms started going off and alerts and notifications started going off. And they were being alerted to be on deck because if the scope and scale of, you know, if the, there were so many victims that they needed to increase capacity, they would be called in to help as hands on deck. So in that moment, as we were photographing, I asked the students how they defined health. I also asked the students why they, do they remember why they got into medicine? And I also asked them what they felt about what was happening a block and a half away from us at this moment. And so the notifications were going off on their phones. The helicopters were flying right above our heads. Uh, there was a lot of background noise. And as we were photographing, I asked them these questions about violence, structural violence, trauma, financial disparity. And their faces in these portraits, their eyes were, they were, they were so saddened. And you could see in the four students that we photographed that they were feeling that collective ache. They were feeling that all of those things that you just touched on are connected. And that's the reason they went into medicine because they understand as medical students and physicians and nurses and the public needs to understand that all of these, these spokes are connected to one another. And so when we talk about how do you define health, and as they sat before us being photographed, I was just, I was overwhelmed by the emotion in their faces. And you could really see in their eyes the reason they want to be a part of improving public health, especially in Chicago, because of course we have one of the highest um, uh, trauma rates in the, in the country by blunt force, homicide, suicide, and, and uh, gun violence, so, and penetration wounds. So I, I think we captured the sadness and pain in their eyes at that very moment as their phones were sounding. And that's a moment where you see that people are trying to do their best day to day to improve public health but they need to be cognizant and aware of all of the ways in which public health is connected and we're connected to each other. So when, when we talk in Chicago about, you know, someone's got a hoodie and a Glock and a 17-year-old is shooting another 17-year-old, to me, 
that boardroom violence upstream and downstream is worse because it's invisible, because sometimes it's legal, and because those persons in the boardroom at the senior management level, the shareholders, they're not looking into the eye of their victims. So this bureaucratic and administrative moat that is designed by language, by administrative and bureaucratic waste, by confusing terms, um, by delays in care, by denial of care. This administrative moat prevents people from looking into the eyes of their victims. And to me, that's what makes this boardroom violence really the conversation du jour that we should be having now. Because I think harm is easier to impose when you're not looking into the eyes of those who you are harming. Where on the street, you're looking directly into the eyes of yes, the person I agree. you're harming. It's, um, that's it's the, very that's powerful. the danger. Yeah, it's, I agree. It's very powerful and at the same dangerous, like you said. I, I'm sure like all of our listeners are very interested in, in these topics, and they would love to uh, continue to um, uh, listen to what, you're, what you'll continue to work on. Um, with that, I'm going to ask... One last question that we ask all our guests. Do you have any book and or podcast recommendations for our listeners that might be interested in learning more or just want um, a fun read? I, of course, I invite people to read our essays on Instagram at Some People, Everybody. Um, And they can also uh, order the catalog for the exhibition on our website, somepeopleeverybody.com. But we really, you know, there, there's so much great work out there. Um, Barbara Ehrenreich has written extensively about that structural violence you were just referring to. Um, attorney Kate Nicholson out in Seattle is writing frequently about the approach to help, new approaches to help for the disabled community. Um, more and more surgeons and physicians are writing op-eds these days. I gravitate towards philosophy, science, and economics. You know, I'd recommend an essay by Verlin Klingenborg called We Are Still Only Human. It's an old one, but it's available. Um, It was published in the New York Times Magazine in 1996 and called We Are Still Only Human. There's also an issue of creative nonfiction journal called Rage and Reconciliation, Inspiring a Healthcare Revolution. And this was published years ago, maybe 15 years ago. And it's written by physicians, patients, lawyers, nurses, and um, that collection of essays that was published, it was around 2003, all of their predictions came through and have been actualized as far as what was going to happen to the healthcare system. I think the most important recommendation I'd make for reading, if there's one, um, is The Tragedy of the Commons by British economist William Forster Lloyd. Um, He goes into the importance of empathy and compassion and assigning value and worth to the lives of strangers. Um, So I think tragedy, the tragedy of the commons, would be something that I'd recommend everybody read no matter what their profession is and no matter their age. Thank you, Kimberly. Thank you so much, Kimberly. Uh, all recommendations. Thank you again for joining us today. It's more important now than ever that we are able to communicate health issues with the public in an approachable way that is clear and unbiased. Sharing these personal stories to highlight the uh, collective ache, as you mentioned, 
will help bring us together to identify these root causes of health inequities. Um, again, thank you for sharing your passion and your work with us today. Um, Kimberly, can you let our listeners know if they would like to keep in touch with you or connect with you, where can they find you? Sure. Uh, the listeners can uh, reach out to me directly uh, through the Some People, Everybody website. So it's Some People, Everybody, and our contact information is there. And I'd love to hear from listeners and have them engage with the project. And we will be exhibiting the, um, we, build, we will have an exhibition in Washington, D.C. Uh, this fall. And uh, we will have an exhibition at Holy Cross uh, in college in uh, the fall as well. So they can keep up with where to catch the exhibition and how to engage with events um, across the country um, at the Some People Everybody website. Thank you so much, Kimberly, yeah. for taking the time to talk to us today. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and authors and do not necessarily reflect or represent the views and opinions of the following entities. National Institutes of Health, the National Cancer Institute, Northwestern University, Northwestern Medicine, Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, the Institute for Public Health and Medicine, University of Illinois at Chicago, and Northeastern Illinois University. Skinny Trees is proudly produced and edited in the Center for Health Equity Transformation, led by Dr. Melissa Simon at Northwestern University. Dr. Simon is a member of the United States Preventive Services Task Force, USPSTF. This podcast does not necessarily represent the views and policies of the USPSTF. Due to the social nature of this podcast, the content used might be copyrighted by another entity or person. This podcast claims no copyright to set content.